0: I started choking Helen. What were you choking her with? My uh, hand. Or a rope, I'm sorry. Did you choke her with
1: a rope? And wait, where'd you get this rope at? Uh, I
0: just found it. <laughs> it was just laying there, you know.
2: That's Andy Royer, confessing in 2003 to the murder of Helen Saylor a 94-year-old woman who lived in the same apartment building as him in Elkhart, Indiana. He has since claimed that the police detective took advantage of his mental challenges and intimidated him into a false confession after hours of coercive interrogation.
3: It broke my heart to listen to it, knowing um, his mental capacity and knowing the background that I knew.
2: Former Notre Dame law student Paula Ortiz Cardona worked on the petition and hearing that won Royer's release after 16 years in prison. She believes Royer is innocent, and she said working on his case to prove it changed her life. Current law students spent this semester preparing their argument that the state appeals court should not overturn the order of a new trial. Exonerations are more common than you may think. There have been nearly 2,700 wrongful convictions overturned in the last three decades. That's an average of one every four days. Each case is the unique story of a real human being whose life has been torn apart. But the people behind them all have one thing in common. They're being helped by a group of Notre Dame law students who are discovering what it means to be a different kind of lawyer in a surprisingly flawed criminal justice system. I'm Brendan O'Shaughnessy, and you're listening to the Notre Dame Stories series, Proving Innocence. Andy Royer, now 45 years old, grew up in Goshen, Indiana with his mother and grandmother.
4: My name is Jeannie Pennington, and I'm Andy's mom. He's the oldest of three children. And we lived in a, in a house next to my mother's house. Um, his dad left um, left his life when he was very young. I worked in a factory the whole time. So I would work nights and my mother would work days. So there would always be somebody home with,
2: with kids. Pennington hadn't graduated from high school at the time. But she suspected something wasn't right with Andy's cognitive abilities from a young age.
4: He displayed some signs of uh, um, having a disability, but I didn't recognize that because I didn't understand then what I understand now. Now I've been a daycare director for six six years. I went through college to understand more of what he has gone through, you know. I would say he was a little on the. Oh, I'd say he's a little on the Osberger side growing up. I thought of him as a gentle giant growing up. Okay. He would do about whatever anybody asked him to do.
2: Royer finished high school and was in his 20s when an accident precipitated a turn for the worse. His attorney said he pushed an electrical co-worker out of the way of a falling telephone pole that hit Royer, causing him to lose part of one finger. Afterwards, the trauma appears to have further weakened his mental capacity, almost like a rewiring of the brain. He was living in the Waterfall High-Rise Public Housing Complex near downtown Elkhart in 2002. The morning after Thanksgiving, police officers found a 94-year-old Helen Saylor dead in her apartment. There was no sign of forced entry but Sailor lay on the kitchen floor with marks on her neck that suggested she had been strangled with a rope or cord. The police collected fingerprints and talked to neighbors, but the case grew cold over several months. Ortiz Cardona, the law student who worked on Royer's case, said the legal team considers solving the crime a part of their job.
3: This is really difficult because you get so caught up in the innocence and in fighting for someone's life, that you forget that there was a victim in this case. Um, And that's horrible, right? You know, you have to, part of this, and part of one of the biggest learning experiences throughout this process is to remember that, you know, there is a victim. Someone did die, and we have to keep that in mind and honor it. Um, And part of our work is also trying to figure out who did it. So our work in finding who actually did it may or may not have um, value legally. But we think it's important to do that part too, not just for our case, but also, you know, because the truth is important and the truth can be very healing.
2: Nine months after the murder, a new homicide unit picked up the case and two detectives went back to the high rise to find more information. When someone recalled seeing resident Lana Kanan acting suspiciously, the police had her fingerprints compared to those found in Sailor's apartment. Since the state lab was backed up, the department gave the job to one of its own detectives, who had some experience with fingerprint analysis. That analysis found that a pinky print of Kanan's matched one found on a medicine tub in the apartment. The police had their big break. The officers picked up Lana Canan while she was riding with a friend, Nina Porter. Kanan denied involvement, but Porter would later testify that Kanan admitted her guilt and implicated Royer as the brawn to Kanan's brains. Royer was brought in for questioning. He waived his Miranda rights at 9.34 a.m. After about four hours of interrogation, Detective Carl Conway turned on a tape recorder.
1: Andy, what I want to talk to you about is about the homicide we're currently investigating, investigating Helen Saylor. Um Happened Thanksgiving Day of last year, in 2002. Um, Andy, you know about this homicide? Yes, I, I, I heard about it, yes.
2: The roughly 20 minute recording is unsteady and halting, interrupted by stops and starts. Several times, Conway doesn't seem to get the answer he wants and reminds Royer of their earlier discussion. Did
1: you eventually go back to Helen's? No. I didn't. I have no reason to go back over there. <clears throat> okay, now, Andy, we talked about during. Before the tape began, you you told me that you went back to Helen's by yourself. Is that true? Yes, I I went back there.
2: Other times, he appears to ask leading questions.
1: Did you tell Helen you wanted more money? Yes, uh, I... I, yeah, that's what I asked her. How did Hiller react when he asked that? I
0: don't know how I could help you. How
1: did you react when you heard that? Did it make you angry?
0: Yes, it made me pretty angry.
2: Detective Conway also asked about two pieces of physical evidence that could be corroborated. He asked about stolen items that Royer claimed he sold at a nearby pawn shop. Andy asked about some hand towels that Royer claimed he threw down the building laundry chute.
1: You also indicated, uh, when we were talking earlier, uh, that you uh, cleaned up the apartment per se, clean up the apartment. Uh, uh, did you do that? Uh, yeah, I
0: just made sure everything
1: was normal. Now, when you say made sure everything was normal, what exactly do you mean by that? That it was
0: clean and uh, um, no evidence was in front of me.
1: It just, and so, and, and how exactly did you do this? What did you do to clean up the apartment? And I... To get it down, to get rid of the evidence. So you say, what exactly did you do? I put things back in uh, spots.
0: I made sure everything wasn't out of the ordin- ordinary. I guess.
1: Did you did you wipe anything down? Uh, no. No. Earlier we uh, we talked. You indicated about some items that
0: you got out of a linen closet. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um. Uh, um. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I cleaned up around the sink and
2: stuff. Royer was arrested, yet he denied he had confessed, saying he had the wrong guy. Conway wrote in his report. When Conway reminded Royer he had admitted to choking Sailor, Royer responded. Yeah, well, can I just go home now? Uh,
4: My mother called me and told me. I was at work and I came home and she called me up and told me that Andy was in jail for murder. And then I hung up the phone and and there was a a message on the answering machine from Andy. So um, it was quite a shock. So I knew something was really not correct in the whole thing. I knew he didn't do it. I called up a friend of mine who worked in the legal system at the time and she kind of helped me realize that this was a big deal. She didn't know if Andy would be able to get out of it or not right from the beginning. So, um, she helped me with my feelings the whole time that he was in trial. He had told me that he had been in interrogation for three days and didn't have his medicine and uh, um, a, a few of the other things. So I went to his, I went to his public defender and asked him about that, and he kind of blew it off, like, oh, that doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, he told me Andy was guilty. So I tried to get a new public defender, and they wouldn't let me have one.
2: The case against Royer and Canaan came down to three pieces of evidence. The fingerprint, Nina Porter's testimony, and Royer's confession. Porter testified that Royer would do anything Canaan told him to do, once even standing in the rain on command. No other physical evidence panned out. The pawn shop had no records of Andy selling jewelry, and the garbage chute had been sealed shut for years, so the hand towels were never found. The prosecutor argued that jurors, quote, don't have to have every piece of the puzzle to find the co-defendants guilty at their 2005 trial. Both were convicted and sentenced to 55 years in prison.
3: Basically, Andy's confession, her testimony were the strongest pieces of evidence, obviously. And then after that, there was nothing. And it really it broke my heart to listen to it, knowing um, his mental capacity and knowing the background that I knew. And then realizing that he was pretty much convicted on that confession and a bunch of circumstantial evidence was crazy to me, and it made me really doubt the career I was getting
4: into.
2: Andy Royer and his mother said prison was hard on him, despite his massive size. It
5: was uh, It was like a horror film at first and. After you get into a certain dorm, it goes a lot smoother, but it wasn't home. It was far from being home, and uh, uh, I just don't want to ever go back. That's...
4: It scared me, and I felt helpless because I didn't have any way of helping him. There, Even as an adult child, you try to still help your child through things that, that they're going through. Um, my daughter calls me up when it, her children get a fever. I mean, they still, they, but there was no way to help him at all. And it was a real struggle for me to, to uh, deal with that.
2: The case began to unravel a few years later when Lana Kanan's legal team challenged the fingerprint, the only physical evidence in the case. When an independent expert and in the state lab proved the print on the medicine tub wasn't Kanan's she was released from prison in 2012. Royer was not. Chicago attorney Elliot Slosser, who co-teaches the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic with faculty member Jimmy Garule, learned about Royer's case a few years later. I got involved with Andy Royer's case
6: um, in large part due to uh, all the work we did for Keith Cooper. I believe in 2016, the Indianapolis Star started a series, a wrongful conviction series, where they covered different cases uh, in Indiana where people had been wrongfully convicted. And Andy Royer's was, uh, case was uh, one of the articles that they published. And I remember reading Andy's article uh, and saying, oh my goodness, you know, this person seems completely innocent. Uh, what can I do to help. Around that same period of time, Andy's current attorney reached out to our uh, project uh, about getting assistance from us.
4: Then when Elliot showed up, by that time I'd given up hope. So it took a little while and him talking to me to get me to realize that he was going to get him out.
2: Royer's confession was the biggest obstacle. Juries find them convincing because they can't imagine someone would confess to a crime he didn't commit. Police officers knew Royer's mental limitations made him especially vulnerable, yet his public defender never called an expert for why people falsely confess. In an earlier appeal, a judge found that to be a reasonable choice, noting that Elkhart juries don't appreciate outside experts. That claim sparked Slosser's interest. He discovered that the judge had been the prosecutor in a well-publicized case in the early 1990s that involved a coerced false confession. A man admitted to killing his daughter by hitting her in the back of the head with a pipe. But when the body was found, she had been stabbed to death. The interrogating officer in that case oversaw the Royer investigation. Besides casting doubt on the confession, Royer's team of law students at Notre Dame Reinterviewed the trial witnesses as a part of their investigation.
3: Investigating is really interesting. It's most of the time, you show up to their, someone's house and you just, you tell them who you are and you ask to talk to them and they might say yes, they might say no and if it's no, you leave and if it's yes, you know, you're invited.
6: I remember one of the students on the Royer case had a class that ended in the afternoon in the middle of winter and drove to Indianapolis by herself to meet Patty and I. Patty's the investigator for us down in Indianapolis um, so that we can interview the main third party witness in Andy's Keys. You know, we didn't know if she was going to be home. We didn't know if she would open the door. She had never told her story before that. But the fact that the student, drove after class, you know, several hours to meet us for a potential witness interview um, was inspiring. And of course, um, as luck would have it, um, the witness was home and opened the door and said that she had been waiting years uh, to tell the story um, about why she lied against Andy and Lana King in a trial. And and, and it was an incredible moment that we recorded uh, and eventually helped Lead to Andy's freedom.
2: What follows is a portion of Nina Porter's testimony to Elliot Slosser. I'm going to ask you some questions about this report
6: to see, you know, some of the stuff in here that's true and some of it that's false, um, and and sort of see where you got that information. I can
0: save you the time. Okay. Thing, I didn't know anything about it.
6: You didn't so know anything was, about it. It's all
0: false because I didn't know anything about it. She never told me anything about
4: anything.
6: Did Lana Keenan ever confess to you?
4: No, I was in trouble and I was going to be in more trouble. I was tired, and I just knew, after so many hours, I knew what they wanted me to say.
2: Porter told the teen that she had lied because police officers had threatened to take her children away and put her back in prison for violating parole. They also offered her $2,000 in reward money that a friend of Helen Sailor's had put up for information that could solve the case.
3: That was another part of it that was... Extremely emotional because when you find someone who has been holding that for years out of fear, you know, and You show up to her door and she just breaks down, you know, because she's been wanting someone to come and ask her about this case
2: So I asked Ortiz Cardona how this case affected her.
3: Well personally it changed my career. I Throughout law school, I think it's a common, I don't know if you've read uh, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. In that book, he talks about feeling really disconnected in law school because it was so theoretical, and which is important. But he felt like he lost his purpose while he was in law school. He felt disengaged from the law itself and like in, in practice. And I went through a similar experience my first year and a half um, I didn't understand, I, couldn't, I kept saying to myself, what am I doing here? I don't know if this is what I want to do. Um, Exoneration project gave me a lot of purpose and it, it gave me sort of a little bit more of a drive because I had an actual client and I was working towards something that in my eyes mattered.
2: At the post-conviction relief hearing, Cardona and another law student, Lenora Popkin, were in charge of handling two witnesses each.
3: I knew nothing two weeks before, or three weeks before I was in court. I had no idea how to direct examine someone. It forced me to learn, it forced me to get ready, it forced me to prepare, and I got up there and did it, and it was the most, I blacked out, and it was the best experience of my life. And I realized I can do, I mean, if a law student, if I could do it as a law student, um, I can do it as a lawyer. I was reading the transcript when we were quite, we were filing something recently, and I was rereading the transcript of that entire examination, and I could see where I had, had it, got objected to and responded, and how I responded, and I kept thinking, like, "Ooh, I sound eloquent! Like I don't think I could reach it. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't remember." At the end of the day, when I finished, that I felt on top of the world. Um, I felt like it. I felt so strong. I felt so confident. I felt good about what had just happened.
2: In particular. Ortiz Cardona remembered wanting to do a good job for her professor, Jimmy Garule, a former federal and state prosecutor. Months later, Slosser was talking on Zoom to another group of Notre Dame law students when he got a message that Andy had won his case and could be picked up immediately at the jail. A judge had ordered a new trial and that Royer be freed without having to post bail, a rare occurrence. He rushed there with Popkin, Garule, and Royer's family.
6: I was ecstatic. I thought that we would get a ruling, that we'd be litigating a bond hearing or, you know, preparing for an appeal or preparing for a retrial. I had no idea that everything would happen at once. Some cases um, are really close to your heart, and I think that with Andy, um, you know, when he was set free, for me as a lawyer, it was sort of like, you know, where do you really go from here? Uh, how how can things possibly get better?
3: So Ellie calls me tells me they're on their way and they're getting masks. And, you know, dealing with this under COVID is very, also very stressful and not ideal, but who cares, right? Um, and, you know, we all cried. We were all very excited because I I honestly couldn't believe it. Reading the judge's findings was very validating and felt incredible to see some of your work, your investigation, your words even on, um, on his opinion stamped. And he basically validated everything we said. It just shows the strength of this case. It just shows Andy's innocence.
2: Royer's mother has struggled with bone cancer that made it difficult to visit Andy in prison for the last decade. She could only talk to him on the phone and pray that she could one day see him outside of prison again.
4: Oh, I was in total shock. I wasn't going to believe it until I saw it. I had told Elliot that, to me, it was like Moses partying the Red Sea if he could get him out of jail. And when he walked down the stairs, that was a miracle.
5: I was overwhelmed. I didn't know, I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know how to express myself. Uh, I was just going with the flow.
2: Since coming home, Royer has been helping his mother and stepfather build a new house, taking long walks with his dog to get in better shape and cooking, a skill he learned in prison. He said he feels like a whole new person Choosing what to do with his time.
5: Oh, this, that, and about, about every little thing. Uh, just uh, hanging out at the lakes, waving at people when they go by, and uh, going to church, men's fight club. and uh, No, it's not what it sounds like. It's a Christian base. It disciplines you, as Mike was saying a little bit ago, to be a better person.
2: The Elkhart County prosecutor appealed the decision. So Royer's team spent this last semester preparing a brief for the appellate court, arguing that Royer should either be exonerated or at least granted the new trial. They hope it won't come to that.
3: I'm disheartened with the criminal justice system every day the same way I am with many other things that are going on in the world. Uh, but Andy's case, and I hope what Andy's case brings to Elkhart and to law students is that you know we can, Lawyers can make a difference, you know. There are avenues, there are good people in this world. Um, So it
2: should bring people hope, and it brought me hope. Proving Innocence will take a break as the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic prepares to file several new relief petitions in the new year. We'll be back next year to take you inside three current cases where the clients are still in prison. Proving Innocence is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Brendan O'Shaughnessy. Our music is by Alex Mansoor. Special thanks to the Notre Dame Law School for their help with this series. If you like Nordame Stories podcast series, subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.